Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. It's been a year since the election of Pope Francis, and so today I am giving the chair to Father Thomas Rosica, executive producer of this program and CEO of Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation, who looks at the events that led to Pope Francis's election and the year that has been. He speaks with Salt and Light producers Alicia Ambrosio, Sheridan Sanders, and Sebastian Gomes, who give expert analysis. Here now is Father Tom Rosica with Moving Forward from Benedict to Francis. A very common question that we're familiar with is where were you on 9-11? Where were you on, on a day when a momentous event happened in the world? But a question that I put to you today is where were you on 2-11? February the 11th, 2013, one year ago, when on that early morning we heard the news of a Pope resigning. Pope Benedict XVI leaving his position as Pope, Supreme Pontiff, Bishop of Rome. We continue to experience the after-effects of what happened because Pope Benedict XVI admitted that he was no longer capable of fulfilling his mission as Supreme Pontiff, as the Bishop of Rome. With me today to help us relive the events of the past year and to perhaps analyze critically what has happened since the resignation of Pope Benedict are three people of our staff, three producers, Sheridan Sanders, Sebastian Gomes, and Alicia Ambrosio. Three individuals who were deeply immersed in the transition story and who helped bring that story not only to our viewers across Canada but to around the world. So welcome and today we're going to look back over the past year and to really see what has happened and what continues to happen in the church. Sheridan, where were you on 211? I remember when the, the message came in on my phone, and I, I mean, I got the message from you, and I thought, oh my gosh, is this, is this real? Like, I, I couldn't imagine it. And then within 15 minutes, I got texts from my friends saying, is that even possible? These are all my secular friends, right? Like, can you resign as the Pope? It doesn't, ma- it doesn't make any sense, right? So, um, yeah, and then of course I came in right to work, and we, everything unfolded from there. Sebastian, do you remember that morning? Yes, I do. I was actually sleeping, and you called me on the phone, and you just said, look, Sebastian, uh, the Pope just resigned. And I said, what? And I got out of bed, and I remember running to the television, and I was glued to the television for you know a good three hours before coming into work, just watching all the different uh, news networks trying to make sense of this story. They all had the images. It was in huge letters across the screen. I mean, it was the biggest story uh, that I can remember in recent history as far as how it took over the news. Alicia Ambrosio, you're our Vaticanista. You're a seasoned visitor to the Vatican. You understand the inner workings. Did you ever imagine something like this happening? In, like in hindsight, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, and all the signs were there. And we had kind of prepared for that. We'd tossed that idea around, what if, you know, what if. We were all kind of prepared for the day that Benedict would be no more. We expected, like a grandfather, he would go to sleep one day and not wake up, and that's how the transition would happen. And then I woke up that morning and had a text message from a friend who is quite a joker, and this friend said, trending on Twitter, Pope Benedict resigns. And I said, ha, ha, very funny. And then I went to Twitter and saw all the texts, and I just remember thinking that we had spent all this time preparing for a papal transition, and we had a book about this big with what to do uh, when it happens, what happens when there's a transition, and I thought, oh, man, the whole binder just got tossed <laughs> out the window. <laughs> um, so it was, it was 
yeah, it was big, it was shocking, but looking back, it, it's like, well, of course, what else would you expect Benedict to do? We had no playbook for such an event. The last time we had a papal resignation was, I think, in 1294. Sultan Light wasn't there yet. <laughs> and uh, Pietro Morone, who would become Celestine V, a Benedictine monk, interestingly enough, was on the job just for several months and realized that he couldn't fulfill his mission. And he retired and went to a monastery to pray. But here we have a whole different story. We have the great teaching pope, a brilliant theologian, I believe he'll be a doctor of the church one day, who admits very humbly, very peacefully, in Latin of course, that he's not able to fulfill this. When we got to work that morning, when you finally showed up at work after watching <laughs> us on the secular TV <laughs> networks, uh, we were inundated with news networks from all over the world who came to us to get our feedback. Is this a, a tragedy? Is this a disaster? Does this throw the church up into the air? Does this pull the rug out from under our feet? But what did we experience in those first 48 hours of the impact of this resignation? Did we see it as a failure? Did we see this as crisis and chaos at the top because of all of the problems that the Vatican was experience, experiencing at that moment? Or did we see this as a teaching moment? Do you remember what you felt? Well, I remember just being overwhelmed by the newness of it. I thought, wow, you know, it's only in the Catholic Church where you can have so much continuity in so much change at the same time. And, um, and I, I remember being asked by many of the, the news outlets about this, you know, what do they think about this? What does it mean for the papacy? And I thought, well, the one thing about the papacy is that, you know, nothing has been done in the Catholic Church. It hasn't been done already. So we do know what will happen. And it's not something that will, you know, that the, the, the world will fall apart, essentially, because it's happened. And so I thought, in the midst of all of that confusion and excitement, there was a deep sense of also just things are going to be as they should be. And I think that everybody was very trusting in Pope Benedict's decision there. They knew where that decision came from. It was a, it was a place of profound humility and also a sense of the job needed to get done and the Holy Spirit will provide. Sebastian, you're a student of the Second Vatican Council, a lover of the church. What did you think when you saw this playing out? Well, I think Sheridan uh, hit the nail on the head. Um, if, if you think about what, what a resignation looks like in the secular world of a major institution, of a global institution, <coughs> it usually happens in a time of profound and immediate crisis. Like something terrible happens, a whole bunch of money has gone missing, or bad investments were made, or whatever, a corruption or scandal. And the head of the institution has to step down, has no other choice. So I think when we first heard the announcement, there was all this speculation about what could this possibly have been that would make uh, the leader of one of the oldest institutions in the world uh, step down. Now, what you said is very important, that Benedict understood probably more than anybody the severity and the significance of making this decision. So, you know, you mentioned that people trusted him, that we, especially Catholics, we said, okay, like we, knew, we knew this man, we knew this man is a great teacher, a great lover of history, a student of history. He, more than anybody, knew how significant of a statement this was going to be. You know, and the fact that this was not an emergency situation, but a decision that he came to over a long period of time, a period of reflection and deep prayer, um, says a lot about the man and also says a lot about the church. Because if we think that Benedict is this great conservative who, you know, was, was you know, trying to 
rein in uh, the radical things that happened after the council and that kind of thing. I mean, no, he understood the church in that dynamic way that's constantly um, renewing itself, bringing itself up to date, and uh, this, this one decision single-handedly points that out. In the months preceding the decision on February the 11th, both of us, you and I, had a privileged view of what was happening inside because we sat in a synod hall for the month of October 2012 and watched a synod of bishops on the new evangelization deal with what they were supposed to deal with. But we also watched a very tired pope each day as he made his way into the hall, as he listened patiently, made several interventions, but very quietly. Did you ever imagine, as you look back, that this might be the last time that this pope will preside over a synod? Well, no, certainly not. I mean, that would have been uh, speculation, but you're right. He did look tired, and he did look, um, you know, run down. I, I, it, was, it was so blatantly obvious that physically he wasn't the same Benedict that, you know, we had been seeing over the last couple of years. So the deterioration happened very quickly. Now, in hindsight, one of the very significant things he did was called the special consistory to appoint six new cardinals. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense in some ways because he had just made cardinals the previous February. So what was he making these six new cardinals for? And there was immediately speculation. I remember you and I talking about that, about what this actually means. And especially looking at the, the cardinals who were appointed, a wide variety of uh, bishops from all over the world. I'm Deacon Pedro and you're listening to a special Salt and Light Hour featuring Father Thomas Rosica with Alicia Ambrosio, Sheridan Sanders and Sebastian Gomes as they remember the events that led to Pope Francis's election. Alicia, let me ask you a question as a, a close Vatican observer watcher. The Vatican thinks in centuries and also lives symbolically. Our world thinks in nanoseconds and has no sense of symbol or history. What was happening on February the 11th and in the subsequent weeks until the completion of the papacy, of his papacy, was big-time thinking, long-range thinking, and also highly symbolic actions of the final visits, of the liturgies, of the departure from the Apostolic Palace on February the 28th. How did the secular media tune in to those events? Do you think they did? They did, and it was almost as if, for the first time, they really connected with Benedict. Until then, he'd been kind of the German theologian, um, ready to pronounce why this, you know, the way we do things in this current world is, is shouldn't be done this way and why we all need to change. But the act of resignation was something that the secular world could understand. So the media seemed to catch on to that, and they really caught on to the idea that it is a turning point because he's doing something that hadn't been done in about 700 years, 600, 700 years. Um, the theme was really great. What comes next? What door has he opened? He's just thrown um, what our expectations to the wind. So now anything can happen. And it seemed to be the same sensation around the Second Vatican Council. When, when that council was called, there was that same air of the doors have just been flung wide open. Anything can happen. We don't know what's coming. And that's what they caught on to. Let's put this back in historical context, because Benedict is somebody who thinks in centuries and is also very attentive to the liturgical seasons and to time. And so on that morning of February the 11th, he announced that his papacy would come to an end on February the 28th at 8 o'clock in the evening. 
I can still remember some of the journalists saying, why at 8 o'clock? Why not at 5 o'clock? Why not half a day? Shouldn't we have, uh, give a day off that day? But it was very simple. February the 28th, on the eve of the beginning of Lent, the season of penance, the season of preparation, of uh, reconciliation. Secondly, why 8 o'clock in the evening? That's the end of the workday on a Tuesday at the Vatican. And that was the day, the time that was decided that I'm finishing my work. Thirdly, the way that he went about taking leave of the Vatican, because we had no playbook for this, it was an extraordinary event. Many people have asked me, what was the saddest moment for you? I had to live this on the inside from the Holy See Press Office. And I think, Sebastian, you and I would say that that profoundly moving departure on February the 28th was gripping. The entire world watched that. You almost didn't need a commentary because the images spoke for themselves. Pope Benedict leaving the Apostolic Palace at 5 o'clock in the evening, that cold Roman afternoon, the sun was out. Coming down into the Cortile San Damaso, the courtyard, the entire staff and the Secretary of State there waiting for him, most of them in tears, including the driver who knelt down before him, kissed his hand, getting into the car. Everyone else was in quite a state. But the one who breathed, breathed serenity, who, who offered a model of peace and acceptance was Benedict. There was a sweetness and a peacefulness on his face. Even his secretary, Bishop Georg Ganswein, who was the great protector and the, the one who was with him all the time, was deeply moved in tears. And then we saw that carefully or orchestrated departure from the Vatican Gardens, from the heliport. We saw the helicopter lifting off, cameras carefully positioned to show a, an ascension almost. And as the helicopter lifted off, it flew around the cupola twice, almost a farewell. You know, he was leaving now. And we saw rooftops with banners and signs, Vielen Dank, Heilige Vater, Grazie, Santo Padre. And then that historic flight over Rome. How can anyone ever forget that? Flying over Rome, New Rome, and then ancient Rome, the Roman form, the slow dip over the Colosseum, flying over Ciampino Airport, and then the arrival at Castel Gandolfo. And what was very interesting is that Castel Gandolfo, what was shown to us was not somebody from the back coming in, but there were cameras that were welcoming, welcoming him home. And I shall never forget the scene on the balcony, on the terrace. There were tens of thousands of people in the piazza, and in the, the inner courtyard and the outside piazza. And he looked at his watch and said, uh, in a few hours I'll no longer be the Supreme Pontiff. I'll become a pilgrim like the rest of you on this last leg of our journey. And he talked about the beautiful nature and Lago Albano and everything around it that would help him. And that was it. That was the last time he spoke publicly as Pope. And then later that evening at 8 o'clock, we asked ourselves, how are we going to commemorate this? We had no liturgical celebrations. We said the doors of the Papal Palace at Castel Gandolfo will simply close and the Swiss Guard detail will walk away. And that's exactly what happened. What was your feeling in Rome that night? You saw this up close. You felt it. You also dealt with some of the key players. Do you remember your sentiment? Well, I think this answer is probably uh, unsatisfactory for this show, but I was speechless. Like, that's, uh, like you said, no commentary was really necessary when you saw those images. And I remember the, the, the most tangible feeling for me was after uh, the doors closed at 8 o'clock and you and I were in St. Peter's Square. And I remember you were, you were hosting the, the event and you called us uh, and I was on the phone with you and I was kind of describing what the atmosphere was like in St. Peter's Square. 
and there was just an emptiness. There was a real heaviness because the light in the little apartment mm -hmm. was off. And it was usually on, I mean, until about 10 o'clock p.m. You would see, you know, the window maybe open if it was a warm, uh, warm day. And the lights on, and you, knew, and you knew Pope Benedict was in there, you know, writing something or playing with his cats or whatever it was. But he just, the, the light was off, you know, and that was, that was very powerful. There was, a, there was a heaviness and an emptiness in Rome that night, and I think everybody felt it. On that very night, um, we had the privilege of speaking to Cardinal Donald Wuerl, the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., one of the cardinals who had been with the Holy Father that morning. Do you remember Cardinal Wuerl's uh, reaction to the whole event? I do. I mean, he was uh, so gracious to come and spend some time with us and, and speak to us that evening. Um, I was shocked by his response to my question of how he felt. And he told us that uh, he had a lot of hope. And uh, that seems to be exactly the opposite of what I just mentioned about what the feeling in the square was. But then he went on to explain that, that with this gesture, Pope Benedict was telling us that we don't have to always do things the same way that it doesn't always have to be business as usual, that we're capable of doing new things, courageous things, forward-looking things, and that that's uh, an incredible, uh, uh, that gives incredible hope, not only uh, to you know, him as a bishop and a cardinal, but to the entire people of God. Then began what we know as the Sede Vacante, the official name. The see is now vacant. In colloquial Italian, it would be we're off to the races. And what an experience that was in those, those weeks leading up to the conclave. There was all kinds of emotions around the world, expectations, hopes, desires, some realistic, some very unrealistic. But one thing that was very important, something was missing in this sede vacante as in previous sede vacantes. And you know what that was? A funeral, mourning, weeping, eulogizing, remembering, nostalgia, this time, we were really off to the races. There was an opportunity for people to gather together and to talk about real serious things without that funeral cloud. Do you remember that period, Sheridan? Yeah, I mean, I'm, when I think back to Pope John Paul, then transition from Pope <coughs> John Paul to Benedict, I mean, there was so much heightened emotion at that time, and I, I wasn't even sure if I was ready for a new pope. Um, whereas now, even though I... I was ready for a new pope because of the resignation. There's a sense of anticipation that was heightened. And, and now you're thinking, okay, so now we know that the Synod on New Evangelization has set these priorities for us. Which way are we going? Are we going to embrace this? Are we going to go in this direction? Or, you know, who's going to be the player? Who, who's going to lead in, in terms of, you know, uh, setting the tone? And, and what can we look forward to? So for me, it was very exciting this time. This is a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro, and we're remembering the events of Sede Vacante of March 2013. Here now is Father Tom Rosica. Sebastian, one of the most important things that took place in that period of waiting were the congregation meetings, the meetings of the cardinals for about 10 days. Why were those meetings important, and what began to emerge from those meetings? Well, you mentioned that there was no funeral and that that was a defining quality of this particular sede vacante and conclave. Um, basically, what it allowed for was the cardinals to speak about the real issues that were going on in the church. And now you, we were talking about the resignation of Benedict and how there wasn't you know, a major, a singular scandal that caused him to make the decision to resign. But there were a lot of problems specifically in the Vatican bureaucracy. <coughs> that was no secret. Everybody was aware of that. There was 
uh, you know, dysfunction and uh, poor administration um, at all levels. So this was something clearly that the Cardinals had to deal with. Um, they could speak very openly, they could speak very frankly, because they knew the unprecedented nature of the situation called for that kind of serious reflection. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, you have to say that whoever the Pope was going to be, he had a very clear mandate from his brother cardinals about what to do, you know? So if we, we, have to, we have to look through that lens, too, a year later when we're looking at Pope Francis and what he's doing. Alicia, you have Argentinian blood, and so you have a, an insider's view on what eventually happened. As you saw the meetings taking place and the ideas, the issues, the problems, the profiles emerging, what did you think from your perspective? There was still, from my point of view, there was still a bit of fear. There was fear that the status quo would prevail. There was, the Italians were going about this as if it was any other conclave. And so they had their papabile, and there were factions within the Italian cardinals promoting their candidate over the others, and there was a fear that oh, maybe, maybe, just maybe, they'll, you know, they'll get their hands in there and it'll be like before. But I, th I saw that there was another factor here. Because there wasn't this cloud of mourning like there was with, with J when John Paul II died, for the first time, the cardinal electors were in a position where they knew for about a month that this conclave was coming. And they were at home for that month. And they were available to their parishioners for that month. And I told a lot of people, I said, I bet you that there are little old ladies going up to their cardinal archbishop saying, you know what we need? You need to elect this man because we need someone like that. And so I think for the first time, we had cardinals coming into this conclave with very clear messages from their faithful because it was the first time that we as, as faithful could actually, like, influence them a little bit, could tell them, this is what we see, this is what we need. Mm -hmm. So I saw that shaping up. Um, and I did, I did, I was reading the, the Latin American press, and they were actually thinking that maybe um, it was finally time for a Latin American pope, but they were thinking someone a bit younger and a bit more vocal. Uh, they were thinking um, the Salesian Cardinal Rodriguez Maravillaga, and nobody, but nobody thought that the cardinals would actually dare go to the ends of the earth to find the next pope. Also because Cardinal Bergoglio at the time, this was the last thing he wanted. I mean, he doesn't, he wouldn't give interviews. Uh, he didn't want... He was ready he, for retirement. He didn't want the apostolic palace. He, he, there was a book written about him in 2010, and it was a conversation between him and two Argentine journalists. And they asked him point blank, okay, you're in your 70s, what are you doing? And he said, well, I've picked out my room at the retirement home for priests, and I'm going to move there, and I think I'm going to learn how to use the internet. <laughs> this was his plan. This was totally his plan. And he was, hand, he was picking um, his successor for Buenos Aires. So there was really no, like, nobody, but nobody was thinking the Cardinals would pick that man. We were all thinking they might go in that direction because of the, you know, the, the, census fide, the consensus fide, the, the people saying this is what we want. But not as, not, there wasn't a clear candidate. Let's look at the conclave itself. I think there, there are so many myths around the conclave. Uh, I got to live that in, in a way I never imagined. I remember the night before the conclave, Father Lombardi coming to my room and saying, oh, by the way, in this very gentle way, tomorrow 
I'd like you to be with us in the Sistine Chapel for the opening ceremonies. From say, in the Sistine Chapel, I thought by, by way of a screen or something. He said, we need witnesses, and so you'll be a witness. It was an incredible moment because by the time the cardinals entered the conclave, their work had been done. The conclave itself is not an opportunity to sit around and to discuss and to politic or whatever. In fact, there are very little spoken words. It is in the context of prayer. And what better setting to have? I remember as I sat there and watched the cardinals come up the ramp, the Sistine Choir singing, the lights on, looking up at the wall of Christ the Redeemer, the ceiling of Michelangelo, watching one individual after another. And I remember saying to myself, one of you guys is not coming out of here alive, you know. Something's going to happen to you. And heard them as they placed their hands on the book of the Gospels and took the oath in Latin. It was actually quite moving because I remember thinking, it's the same oath that they're taking, but I heard the accents, the Irish accent, the American accent, the South American accent. I remember very distinctly Cardinal Bergoglio, having met him a few days before on the street, twice the week before, kidding with him and chatting with him, and Filipino cardinal and this cardinal and that cardinal. And then, of course, we were thrown out of the chapel. Extra omnes. I was the last one, I think, out. Just by the way where I was sitting, the doors closed and they went to work. The Italians believed that this would be a very prolonged, protracted, painful conclave. They'll be fighting and all kinds of other things. One had the impression of ambulances and EMS people to take the wounded out. After their bickering and fighting and stabbing and everything else, they were quite disappointed because they entered the chapel on March the 12th and by March the 13th in the afternoon, habemus papa. What an incredible experience that was. It was cold weather, it was rainy, and each time there had been these smoke alarms, you know, when you stop and think an institution that has really made all kinds of progress with social communications and Twitter and accounts and, and methods of communicating, we relied on smoke signals. <laughs> and then that afternoon, Sebastian, you were there. What do you remember when they told us, Fumata Bianca, white smoke? I remember we were with uh, the CBS crew at the convent of Maria Bambina just outside uh, St. Peter's Square. We were watching the television. It was, it was already had been a very long day for us. We had been running all over the place doing interviews and uh, all of a sudden white smoke. And I remember people yelling, white smoke, white smoke. So I ran to find you um, and then we took off in the opposite direction, <laughs> away from St. Peter's Square, because you had to go up to the CBC tent to, to anchor the commentary with Peter Mansbridge. I remember almost being trampled by hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of people who were streaming to St. Peter's Square. Uh, you're right, it was, I remember it being cold and rain, you know, drizzling. Uh, there was a chill in the air, you know, and it was only accentuated by the fact of what was going on. Umbrellas everywhere, you know, almost slipping on the way up there. Um, but it was an incredible atmosphere. The bells started ringing, and uh, there was joy on people's faces. You could just sense it in the way that they were streaming to the square. Sheridan, you watched it from Canada. Yeah. What was the white smoke signal like here? Well, I was actually in the CTV News um, set, and um, I was just doing a sort of introductory interview, and next thing you know, white smoke. And now we're live talking about <laughs> what this means for the church and I'm watching this all unfold. I forgot to and warn you, there'll be some live moments. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I thought, wow, what an incredible moment. Uh, you know, your heart just swells up uh, in, in these moments of, of, of significance for the church. Because one thing you realize is that 
wherever we are in the world, we're part of this together. And we're experiencing this rebirth, this renewal, all together at the same time, connected in our various ways through the internet, um, through media, and just through the experience of faith and, and being a part of the church. So, oh, wow. It was just one of those days that I think I will never forget. And I remember when he walked out, I was shocked, right? Who's this person? <laughs> I did not have this on my list of people. Uh, we gathered in front of the TV here in, in our studio, and he wasn't on any of our lists. And I heard the Jorge Mario, and I thought, okay, this sounds weird. And I heard the Bergoglio, and it clicked. Wait, this is, this is Argentina. And everyone was silent around me, saying, who, who, who is that? <laughs> and I was the only one who started screaming but screaming, pure joy, yelling, it's Buenos Aires! And I got up and ran. My, my next thing was, I have to call my mother. <laughs> but um, that was like the moment when you feel the Holy Spirit crash landing. Like not just gently touching down upon you and the church, but like the Holy Spirit crash landed. He was going to make himself known. And that was the moment when I think I realized and I think everyone at that moment realized someone else was truly guiding that conclave. The Italians were not doing their usual thing. There were no parties. There were no factions. There were no blocks. This was truly the Holy Spirit. And when he appeared on, on the balcony and spoke in this you know, wonderfully accented Italian, this Spitalian, <laughs> as we call it, um, I think that was the moment everyone, even the secular media, realized that there was something bigger than us going on in that chapel. Just one more thought, too, about that. Um, if you remember all the way back to 1958, when John XXIII was elected after a long papacy of uh, Pius, Pope Pius XII, there were 51 cardinals in the conclave, and it took 11 ballots to elect him. You know? I think we were all shocked, as you pointed out early, earlier, that this didn't take that long, right? Everybody was speculating about all the bickering back and forth and the fighting that was going to go on. It didn't happen. And a man who none of us were paying attention to emerged after only five ballots. Well, Historically, we I mean, it's, it's very powerful. And, it t and it's a test of testament to what we were talking about in the general congregations, that they had figured this stuff out, at least what the profile of the next pope was going to be before they entered the conclave. So we can't look past it. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour, and we're listening to Moving Forward from Benedict to Francis. We spoke about the Bergoglio effect inside those congregation meetings, and now we speak about the Francis effect. It's been a year since his election, almost a year. Everything was set into motion with Pope Benedict's historic and courageous resignation, and we are now here looking back, basking in this Franciscan light, and I'm absolutely convinced if we are thrilled with Pope Francis, we owe a debt of gratitude to Pope Benedict because I am not sure that we would have had the same result had Pope Benedict died or something else taken place. Something tells me that the Holy Spirit used these events, used the resignation to prepare the ground for Papa Francesco. As we look back now over a year of Pope Francis, Sheridan, what comes immediately to mind with this Franciscan revolution that swept across the face of the earth? For me, it's been conversion on a, on a, for the church. You know, he talks about papal conversion in the um, 
uh, he's Evangelii Gaudium. But for me personally, a, a conversion, and I think the conversion of everyone around us. Um, I think everyone has been evangelized as a result of his presence. And I think about this in just from the very first moment he stepped out and bowed <coughs> to you know, his daily homilies and his um, simple sayings and um, the, the joy with which he, he acts out everything that he does, right? There's such a sense of authenticity and simplicity and um, joy about everything that he does. And so I think, for me, it's just been so deeply inspiring and it's just modeled for me who I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to be in this world and what does it mean to be an evangelizer today. Sebastian, we've spoken often about these things, and, and I know you're looking at this story unfolding through the lenses of the Council, through the lenses of John the Twenty-Third, the lenses of John Paul the First. What do you feel has taken place over the past year? <laughs> That's a very good question, especially in that context, and in the context of the 50th anniversary of the Council. You know, when John the Twenty-Third called the Council, he gave that amazing opening address on October 11th, 1962, he said something along the lines of, the greatest concern of the council is precisely to guard and to teach more effectively the ancient deposit of the doctrine of faith. I mean, that's the most basic, traditional, uh, you know, statement that you could possibly imagine coming out of the mouth of a pope. And from that, from that position, he was able to open up the windows, as you alluded to, and let in a breath of fresh air. Uh, Fifty years later, I think Francis is just the incarnation of what John was talking about. That, you know, the substance is one thing, the way in which we present it is another. And everything that Francis is doing, from the things that he's emphasizing, the things that he's de-emphasizing, all of this comes out of you know, a, a realization of the content of the Second Vatican Council. So it's you know, as people were asking me uh, the other day about uh, what Pope John XXIII's canonization means. Well, John XXIII and John Paul II together in April. And some people are, you know, suggesting that somehow John XXIII's canonization represents the vindication of the Council. I think Pope Francis's pontificate represents the vindication of the Council more than that. Alicia. How can somebody preserve and protect and defend the deposit of faith, this depositum fidei, when you don't wear red shoes, when you don't wear gold crosses, when you carry your own briefcase on international trips, when you abandon the apostolic palace and the papal apartment to live in a guest house, and of all things, when you drive a Ford Focus? <laughs> how can you preserve and protect the deposit of faith? To some, that makes absolutely no sense. But to the southern part of the world, to Latin America, this finally makes sense to them. Because our faith is not about the red shoes, the gold cross, the elaborate how many gentil uomini are there bowing and scraping. Our faith fundamentally is about what you do every day. And what Francis is doing is giving us morsels to basically take us from one day to the next. And as you string these morsels together, as you string together like his daily homilies, or the different things he says in his Angelus, as you string these tweets basically together, it doesn't feel like, well, I can't do that. I don't have a 
degree in theology. I can't understand these things. How am I supposed to live this out? But I can understand, don't gossip. I can understand, don't look like a sourpuss. I can understand, you know what, maybe you don't need to have um, 10 pairs of shoes and a Mercedes. Maybe it's, it's fine to live more simply. I, I can understand those things, and most Catholics can understand that. The deposit of faith, as John XXIII spoke of so beautifully in the opening talk at the Vatican Council, is one thing, but we seem to see some new vocabulary words being introduced, once again reintroduced, I should say, synodality collegiality, wide consultation, and these of course send up some alarm signals, sound some alarm bells in some circles. How could one defend and protect the deposit of faith while at the same time opening up the doors and involving all kinds of people in discussion? Just a little question, not very... Uh, not it, very <laughs> just I'd like a 30 second answer. It's an excellent question. Um, you know, one of the most profound teachings that came out of the Second Vatican Council was to think of the church as a pilgrim church, as a pilgrim <coughs> people. Now that implies journey, that implies progress, that implies getting from A to B, that implies development. And that's what the church is. I mean, we, have the, we, have, we, we live in a very in a fascinating time. We're here 2,000 years after this whole thing started. And so we have that gift of a, of a tradition where we can see how it's developed over the centuries. And it's going to continue to develop. And that means change is inevitable. Now, the world today is such a dynamic place. We have all these inter, you know, interlocking and interconnected cultures and societies. And we know about our brothers and sisters in the farthest corners of the world. And they do things very differently than we do. Now, they might understand the gospel in a cultural setting much different than we understand it you know, here in North America. And that's okay. The power of the gospel is such that it, it can be infused in any culture and bring that culture to life. And Pope Francis knows that. And so he's blazing a new trail, but he's only doing what the church has in a sense done for the last 2,000 years, which is how do we make this perennial teaching about Jesus, you know, substantial in the world in which we live, in the context in which we live, in the culture in which we live. And if you don't understand that, I'm sorry to say you don't really understand the tradition of the church. We're listening to Moving Forward from Benedict to Francis on a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Father Thomas Rosica speaks with Alicia Ambrosio, Sebastian Gomes, and Sheridan Sanders about Pope Francis's first year of papacy. Sheridan, let me ask you a very personal, rather confidential question just between us and our viewers. Do you think he's talking too much? An interview in America Magazine that appeared in all the Jesuit publications of the world. A cover story in Time Magazine. This is the person of the year within months after the election. Countless magazines and publications claiming him best well-dressed person. You know, <laughs> magazines that perhaps we wouldn't feature on Salt and Light Television speaking about him. Uh, some people are concerned. Tell them to be quiet. Don't go out there. That's enough. Basta, they're saying. But what is he doing through all of this? The daily homilies, for example, that are read and followed by millions of people. Some are saying this kind of magisterium wasn't really thought of at the time of the council and afterwards. Nevertheless, he's speaking and he's teaching. Is he doing too much? No. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And I think that that is something that's coming through loud and clear. The church and the deposit of faith and what we have, 
with Jesus Christ is not something to be held on to, it's to be shared with other people. And we all need to take inspiration from Pope Francis in not being afraid to speak to our, you know, to our faith and not being afraid that we're not perfect enough because that's not what God asks us to be. He doesn't ask us to be perfect. He asks us to share the love that we've received from Christ with others. And I mean, that's something that I see him talking about all the time. I mean, he, he talks about that all the time in his, um, his uh, apostolic exhortation. So, no, he's not talking too much. You've read the apostolic exhortation. Uh, in fact, I had to pry it from your hands before Christmas. It's the only thing you had. And you've read it. We've all read it. We reflected on it. I preached a retreat on this two weeks ago to the American bishops. What is so significant about Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel? It's unlike anything I've read from a pope. What's so significant? It's so simple, and at the same time, it's saying everything that everyone has been thinking about and been concerned about and experiencing in the church and struggling with. And yet he points us in the direction and tells us, you know, this is the mindset that you need to adopt in order to evangelize with joy. And gosh, I, I felt it not only in terms of how I should proceed with my work, but also personally, how I need to adjust my attitude, my mindset, and, and it's been a, a source of great conversion for me as well. So Pope Francis has, has brought us back to basics. Sebastian, we know about the leaks and the scandals and the lobbies and all kinds of other things. We saw it up close during those meetings in Rome. We hear about them. How dare a person speak about the joy of the gospel? Shouldn't it be the darkness of our times? Shouldn't there be trembling and shouldn't there be fear and, and doom and gloom? Why is it important to speak about the joy of the gospel against the backdrop of many messes? Well, that's the fundamental thing about the faith. Like if you don't, if somehow being a Christian and belonging to the church doesn't inspire joy in you, then you don't really understand what the whole thing is about. And that, that's a struggle for people. It's a struggle for all of us, certainly. But Pope Francis understands that. And, um, you know, I've, I've been talking a lot about the Council on John the Twenty-Third. but you remember in the opening speech he warned and, and was very harsh against those people in the Vatican who were what he called prophets of doom, who saw nothing but terrible things in the modern world and evils and immorality and all this other stuff. And that, you know, we've got to batten up the hatches and put up the doors and, you know, lock all the doors. And he's saying, no, that's not what it's about. That's not what it was about at the very beginning. That's not the kind of person that Jesus was. And what Sheridan said is exactly right, that he brings us back to fundamentals. You know, everything that Pope Francis does has Jesus at the center of it, you know. And if you look, I'm sorry to say for people who are, you know, rattled by what Francis is doing, then you, if, you, if you don't like what he's doing, you wouldn't like what Jesus did because he's doing the exact same thing. You know, it's, it's joy. There's a caring for people one-on-one -on -one that uh, hundreds, thousands of people have now testified to when they have a chance to encounter him, to greet him. Tenderness, you know, love, compassion, forgiveness, mercy. I mean, those are the defining qualities of Jesus. So how can we call ourselves Christian and condemn our Pope for expressing those characteristics and qualities? You've been very attentive to the developments in the area of liturgy under the pontificate of Pope Benedict, the opening up of the extraordinary form and everything that, that followed from that. We've seen a marked change in 
the outward expression of liturgy with Pope Francis. There seems to be a, a simplicity, a dignity, and a beauty, but all of this, of course, invites interpretations and misinterpretations. What do you think Pope Francis is teaching us about the, the liturgy, about the liturgical life, about the celebration of the Eucharist, about our devotional life in the Church? I mean, let's be clear. The so-called liturgical wars about the one way to celebrate the Mass, it's really a first world problem. It's really a North American, to some extent Western European problem. The rest of the world's Catholics really don't care. The rest of the world's Catholics are just trying to get by day to day. And so what he's showing us is get over it. And, and this came through very clearly in the exhortation too. Get over it. A lot of the things that we hold on to as correct, as um, symbols, symbols that need to be part of a mass or need to be part of a liturgy because otherwise it's not a liturgy, those are things that evolved out of a very specific context. So these are things that evolved out of Roman times and these e and it evolved out of a time where there was a clear class system and there was a need to show who was in charge, who had power, who was more aristocratic than, than someone else. And quite frankly, that time doesn't exist anymore. That social context doesn't exist anymore. And so it makes no sense to be fixated on worshiping God in a way that is so rooted in a worldly tradition. And that's what he's showing us. But he's also saying there's nothing undignified about wearing a simple chasuble that I've had for 15 years. There's nothing undignified about not wearing five layers of, of robes. There's nothing undignified about looking at the people. There's nothing undignified about speaking to the congregation in a way they can understand. That's really what he's saying. There's a real sense of renewed practicality about things. Uh, you know, even when he was talking to the, the women in the, the Sistine Chapel there for the baptism, saying, if your children are hungry, feed them. I, I think that we really need to get back to where people are at and what are the realities that people are living with and how can we minister to them and be you know, God's presence to them in these ordinary circumstances. Sebastian, you're a very careful watcher of what the Pope is doing and also you listen to what he's saying. In the area of economics, this has caused some ripples, should I say some uh, strong currents, some reaction to his concern for the poor, to economic theory, to the distribution of the world's wealth. Why do you think what the Pope is saying has been so upsetting, especially to North Americans and some Western Europeans, but primarily North Americans, who have said very publicly he doesn't know what he's talking about in the area of economy? Well, again, I mean, what's one of the very central tenets of the Gospel? Jesus liked to hang out with sinners, and he had a very strong uh, relationship with the poor. He loved the poor, he cared for the poor, he was an advocate for the poor. In Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation, he says, I, I don't want to mince words here. The church cannot separate itself from the poor. That's what it's about. So given that as a reality, what do we do with that? And you know, the other thing that came out in the exhortation is that there's a, a very strong social dimension to the practicality with which he's speaking. So he talks about Jesus, he's talking about, you know, we need to know where people are at, what are the basics, what are the gospel fundamentals. Well, those have very dynamic social implications if you apply them to a society. And if you look at the world, 
I mean, I'm sorry to say, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of economic disparity, um, there's a lot of poverty. So uh, the church's message has to confront those things. And he is doing that, and he's doing that without fear. You know, when tr truth speaking to power is a very dangerous thing. It got Jesus killed in the first century, and, you know, it's going to incite some negative responses from people, but it's the gospel, you know? Get, like, go back to the gospel and read your gospel, and you'll see that everything that Francis is saying is a practical living out, as Sheridan said, of the Galilean 2,000 years ago. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour, looking back at Pope Francis's first year of papacy. Here now is Father Tom Rosica. We have a few moments left, and I'd like to transport us back to a very special moment in which we were all involved this past July in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, because it was there that we got some profound insights into this, this pope, into this South American pope, into this great pastor. I mean, let's be honest, it was utter chaos, it was exhausting, it was exhilarating, but there were some profound moments. What do you remember from Pope Francis in Rio? Um, I remember when, I mean, first of all, when he, he got off the plane and he was in the streets and his car was being mobbed. I don't think anybody expected that he would literally stop the traffic in Rio. Everything came to a, a stop. I'd fire um, the driver by the way. Oh, my gosh. And I mean, we're watching this all unfold and we're thinking, is he going to survive getting, to, getting through the streets of Rio? Um, but more than that, was um, there was a moment where... He present, there was a couple that presented their child who had been born without a brain um, as a gift. And to me, that was one of the most moving moments in the, the He met them on Saturday at the cathedral and at the, vid, at the mass on Sunday, the final mass. He asked them to bring your daughter up in the offertory procession. Yeah. And, and to me, that was just such a profound expression of what it means to be um, the dignity of life, the beauty of God's gift and, and gratitude for all everything that God gives us and a sense of sacredness that all lives are precious, right? And I don't know, for some reason that that just, that just broke me down completely and um, it was one of the most profound moments of World Youth Day for me. What was your real moment, Sebastian? Uh, well, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to travel to the favela in northern Rio where the Pope went for one day it was cold, it was raining, uh, we had to get up at you know, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and go by bus with the other journalists to a special section uh, uh, where we were going to be standing. The crowds were incredible, the security was incredible, like literally hand in hand, police officers and military lining the streets. We saw about a dozen snipers on the roofs, there were four helicopters, and when the Pope finally arrived, everybody just exploded with joy. And I remember watching um, his entourage walk by me. We were sort of right along the, right along the street. I, I remember him walking by me, and everybody that he was with looked uncomfortable. <laughs> all the, like, you know, all the, the Vatican guys, you know, the bishops and the cardinals that were with him, everybody was just a little bit stiff because they were, like, out of their comfort zone. And he looked completely at ease and calm and cool and collected. He loved being there, you could tell. And he was stopping periodically along the way just to greet people. He stopped at a group of uh, young guys you know, that were standing right next to me. And he was just really trying to listen to what they were saying and to shake their hand and to give them his undivided attention. And I saw in his eyes at that moment something I've never seen before, which is 
I've never seen another human, a, a human being look at another human being like that before. It was very, very moving. And I remember thinking to myself, it was the first time I thought about this in my life, that the way he looks at people must be some semblance of the way Jesus used to look at people because it just brings people to life and they know that they're the most important person in the world to him. Alicia, what do you remember from Rio? There are actually two little things. One was the, the, um, the prayer vigil and the, the image of the young people building up the church. Oh. And there was a moment in there where we could tell that even Francis was moved. Like he had this look on his face like he was moved to tears. And I thought how he's human, how he's not afraid to show us his emotion and how even he was touched by this. Um, the, second, the second thing actually happened in the media center. Uh, we were in, in lockdown. There were rumors that he was going to be coming through the media center. And there's a bit of a, a bit of a kerfuffle and people were running out. And uh, one, of the, one of the staffers from Rio is actually a, a young woman who I worked with in Madrid. And she is from Argentina herself and was recruited to work in Rio. And I think she had already been on stage earlier in the week actually reading an intention in Spanish and someone handed her the little bracelet to give her clearance to go right onto the landing pad of the helicopter behind the media center. And I was watching on the, on the screen in the media center and he gets down off the helicopter, he's at the Mobile, about to get on and she just runs forward and it was like magnets, <laughs> this big hug. The joy, like her, her joy in seeing this pope, this Argentine pope. Um, I understood her, what she was feeling in the sense that this is the guy who, it validates the way that as Latin Americans, as people with an Argentine background, this is the way we live our faith. And him being pope validates our faith, our way of living faith. But that joy and the fact that nobody tried to stop her, <laughs> he, nobody tried to stop her, and he didn't look scared. Here's this, you know, this girl who by the end of the week was pretty tired and kind of run down looking, just running towards him, and he, and he just welcomed her with open arms. That was, that was the thing that stuck with me. One year ago on February the 11th, something was set into motion that's caused all of this newness, this freshness, this beauty, this excitement, this chaos, this confusion in the church. We owe a debt of gratitude to Pope Benedict XVI, who had the courage and the wisdom to recognize that the energy required for the Petrine ministry was no longer his. Pope Benedict XVI offered us an example that authority and ministry in the church are not about clinging to power and prestige, nor being a prisoner of history, nor being a slave to tradition. But if we are really part of the church, we realize that this truth possesses us and sets us truly free. And that freedom has been so beautifully exemplified and articulated, incarnated, if you will, in the person of Francis, the Bishop of Rome, the man who came from the ends of the earth, who continues the long, wonderful apostolic tradition, who's brought us in this past year the warmth and the kindness and even the physical features of John the 23rd, the attentiveness to beauty of Pope Paul VI and his love of Jesus Christ and evangelization, the smile of John Paul I, that meteoric smile that lit up the world for a short period of time but was also an important bridge, the boldness and the courage of John Paul II, God's athlete, God's mountain climber, God's gift to the world, soon to be a saint. The sweetness and the kindness 
and the firmness of Benedict XVI, the great teacher of the faith, the one that Francis refers to as El Viejo, the old man in the garden, my protector and my guide. And now we have Francis. But there's a danger in all of this. To reduce Francis to some kind of a mythic Franciscan figure, walking through fields, dressing simply, imitating the wonderful nature of Francis of Assisi. We forget that Francis of Assisi was an ascetic. He was a strong, faithful son of God, a strong lover of Jesus and the Gospels. He wasn't some kind of a hippie from the 1960s on the West Coast. What we have in Francis is not so much somebody who's imitating Francis of Assisi, but someone who is imitating Jesus. When I think of Francis, the Bishop of Rome, I'm not transported back to Umbria, but I'm transported back to Bethlehem, to Galilee, and to Jerusalem, where it all began. Thank you for being with us today to help relive those exciting, incredible moments that began on February the 11th, 2013, and that continue to unfold and surprise and astound and excite and confuse us but hopefully to lead us back to Jesus. Thanks. We just heard a radio edition of Moving Forward from Benedict to Francis, hosted by Father Thomas Rosica, with Alicia Ambrosio, Sheridan Sanders, and Sebastian Gomes. This program first aired on Salt and Light Television on February 11, 2014. The Salt and Light Hour is a ministry of Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. Visit us at saltandlighttv.org radio and share your memories of Pope Francis's first year. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this has been a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour.